0: Well, we are continuing on in our sermon series, "The fullness of life," taken from John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus said, "I have come that they may have life and have it to the full." Um, a full life means an abundant life, a life that is fruitful, a life that is victorious. And so far we've looked at several key elements to this kind of life, which starts with number one, abiding in Christ, where He is the vine and we are the branches, and then the result of that is the fruit of the spirit. We spent quite a lengthy time talking about the gifts of the Spirit, because we will never be all that God intends for us to be until we learn to exercise the gifts that God has given to us. And most recently, we've been talking about the warfare of the Spirit. And I just want to say thank you to those of you who have sent encouraging thoughts and notes my way, saying this has been helpful. And that's, uh, again, a great encouragement to me to continue on in this, and it's been, um, the series has been edifying to me as well. Spiritual warfare is defined this way. Spiritual warfare is that conflict being waged in the invisible spiritual realm that is being manifest in the visible physical realm. It is that conflict being waged in the invisible spiritual realm that is being manifest in the visible physical realm. And this has astounding implications for our everyday lives, for what it means is this, and it's a wake-up call to us. It's a reality check, and the reality check is this. Everything visible and physical is the result of something invisible and spiritual. It is therefore only by addressing the invisible spiritual cause can we fix what is wrong with our visible physical lives. And the, the, the sad reality is that we spend so much of our time trying to deal with the symptoms Rather than the cause, and that gets us nowhere. It's like uh, dealing with those dandelions in our yards. We mow them over, we take the lop the tops of them off, only to have them come back, even with more force. We waste a lot of time in our lives dealing with symptoms rather than the root cause. And in spiritual warfare, the root, that invisible spiritual cause, is the enemy, the devil, and his army of fallen angels. Demons who are especially interested in attacking followers of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he wants to steal God's glory. When we live a full or abundant life, God is glorified. When Satan comes in and attacks and we are not ready and prepared for his attacks, he is able to steal God's glory by stealing our abundance and fullness of life. Author Larry Richards says it this way. He says, what demons do is they influence us. They tempt us twist our thinking and cloud our understanding. They lie to us about our identity in Christ, telling us we are useless and hopeless. Demons encourage bitterness and anger and destroy healthy relationships. They stimulate our fears and cause panic. They drown us in depression and despair. They tell us that we cannot risk stepping out in faith to respond to God's word. Demons push us toward addictions that can ruin our lives, and sometimes in the process, demons ruin Our health—that That is some heavy, heavy stuff. And we can all relate to one degree or another. And we've seen the activity of demons in our own lives and the lives of others, and even and especially for us as believers. Because again, we have a great big bullseye on us because Satan wants to steal God's glory. But the good news is this. God has given to us everything that we need to be victorious in this spiritual battle. And this includes what is known as the armor of God, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, namely the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and then prayer. And each week we've been putting on a different piece of that armor and considering three things. Number one, Satan's scheme. It's important that we know the strategy of our enemy so that we are not left without being able to anticipate his attack. Number two, God's provision to help defend us against that scheme. And then third, our implementation, or how do we practically put on this armor? And so scheme number one was lies. The devil's a liar. He bombards us with lies, all for the purpose of undermining God's revelation with deception. To undermine God's revelation with deception, that age-old question, did God actually say? Step one, he gets us to question God's word, and then step two, he gets us to question God's character. Does God really want what's best for you? Is he really loving? Is he really for you, or is he against you? Now, so that we can defend ourselves against these lies, against this deception of God's revelation, God has provided for us that first piece of armor that we put on, which is the belt of truth, which represents the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, the only sure foundation upon which we can build our lives, the truth of God's Word. We start by fastening on that belt of truth, and with it, we are stable in a world that is full of instability. We are prepared, ready for battle, And third, we are armed with what we will learn about later, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So such is the importance of the belt of truth. The second scheme that Satan throws at us that we talked about was accusation. Accusation. We talked about this last week, where he just wants to throw up in our hearts and our minds, right in our faces, all of our past sins and our current sins, and just the fact that we are miserable failures and that we will never measure up. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, we learned that he does this day and night 24 7, 365. He is constantly accusing us, accusing us, accusing us. And in an effort to do these things, if Satan through accusation is successful, he is able to paralyze us with guilt to steal our joy, to make us feel unworthy, to cause us to doubt God's love, to cause us to doubt our salvation, and ultimately to discourage and depress. And so we can see and we've experienced that accusation is one of the devil's most powerful weapons. Well, so that we can defend ourselves against accusation, God has provided for us the breastplate of righteousness. We talked about it last week. Righteousness being... A right relationship with God which results in right living. A right relationship with God which results in right living. And as we put on the righteousness of Christ, as we are covered by it, Satan's arrows of accusation cannot reach us because we are covered by Christ, the breastplate of righteousness, which, as we learned last week, has a positional quality to it, but also a practical quality. We must live out the righteousness that we have positionally in Christ, which is why Warren Wiersbe says it this way. He says, when Satan accuses the Christian... It is the righteousness of Christ that assures the believer of his salvation, but our positional righteousness in Christ without practical righteousness in the daily life only gives Satan opportunity to attack us. And so we receive that breastplate of righteousness from Christ. He has earned it on the cross. He gives it to us. We give him our sin. We receive his righteousness, but we must live out practically what we have received positionally. The effectiveness of the breastplate of righteousness depends upon it. Well, that brings us today to the third piece of armor, which is the shoes of the gospel of peace. And would you please stand with me as I read this text today, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 15. The apostle Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says to them, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. By the gospel of peace. Let us pray. Father, we ask for your help today. I ask for your help in proclaiming your word and pray that these would be your words coming out of my mouth, that they would be accurate, that they would be powerful, that they would be just what your church needs to hear today. God, I pray for your church of which I am a part and for all of us, God, I pray that we would hear what you have to say to us and that we would be doers of your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in December of 1777, I think uh, Steve was present for that date. Weren't you, Steve? (laughs) Brigadier General William Smallwood, he wrote this to George Washington. He said, The march of the troops through the frosty roads has cut out their shoes, and by being barefoot, they are rendered unfit for duty. We get a glimpse of their plight in this particular painting right here. Um, this is called The March to Valley Forge by an artist named William B. Trego, I think from the 1800s. And In the painting, we see this ragged, ill-clothed army, some having bare feet, as uh, the yellow arrows, arrows note. You may be able to see some of that. Bare feet marching through the snow. Others actually have bandages wrapped around their feet. And this scene caused George Washington himself to write to Henry Lawrence, the president of the Continental Congress. This is what Washington said. He said, A number of men remain confined to hospitals for want of shoes and others in farmers' houses on the same account. We we have no less than 2,898 men now in camp, unfit for duty. Why? Because they're barefoot and otherwise naked. Indeed, one of the greatest needs of the Continental Army at that time was shoes. For the fact of the matter is that no army is fit to fight without proper footwear. And so it is for the Christian soldier. We must give careful thought to our footwear. Footwear is an important key to being victorious. And to be victorious in spiritual battle, we must be outfitted with the right shoes. And specifically, those shoes are the shoes of the gospel of peace. The shoes of the gospel of peace. And as we have done in previous weeks, we'll consider again Satan's scheme. He's got another unique angle by which to attack us. Then we'll consider God's provision to help us to overcome that scheme. And then our implementation. How are we to live it out and put on those shoes in a practical manner? Now, in this particular case, Satan's scheme is conflict. His scheme is conflict. He loves to stir the pot and get people against one another. We have conflict with God, conflict with ourselves, conflict with others, conflict between nations, conflict of all different kinds. Who's behind it all? The devil. There's actually a biblical word for this. It is enmity. Enmity, from the Latin enimicus. It literally means to be opposed or Hostile. Enmity is one of the great and tragic consequences of our sin. For wherever sin is present, there will be conflict. They go together. And this is t- true on two different axes. First of all, there's the vertical axis where we have enmity with God. Enmity with God. Listen to what James chapter 4, verse 4 says. This ought to get our attention this morning. It says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world? is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, who has made himself or herself a friend of the world? We all have, to one degree or another. We have all bought into the world system of selfishness, of putting ourselves on the throne. We are all sinners separated from a holy God. And this verse tells us that whoever clings to their sin, to that friendship with the world, is in conflict with God and literally his enemy. Listen to Romans 8-7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And then Romans five ten goes this far. Bluntly it says that in our sinful state, We were God's enemies. And so here's a harsh truth, especially for those of you who may be here today and say, I'm I'm agnostic. I'm really indifferent to God. I haven't picked a side. The harsh reality is this. In our sin, which describes all of us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we are not just indifferent to God. We are not just neutral. We cannot be Switzerland. Rather, we are literally His enemies. We are at enmity with him. Jesus said it this way. He said, whoever is not with me is against me. So you can't be neutral. You're either with God or he is against you as his enemy. And if you remember from our study of the book of Revelation, that's not a good place to be, is it? Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, it, it all tells us about the ultimate plight of those who are God's enemies. This is how the story ends for them. White and pure, we're following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. You talk about being on the wrong side of history? That's a phrase we hear a lot these days, right? This is it. This is the ultimate of being on the wrong side of history. And so it will be for those who are in the position of being God's enemies due to their sin. So this is the vertical axis regarding conflict in our lives. It is enmity with God. But next, there is conflict on the horizontal axis in which we have enmity with people. Enmity with God and then enmity with people. Because you see, left to ourselves in our sin, we just don't get along very well, do we? We are constantly experiencing conflict with others. Constantly butting heads, locking horns, doing battle. And we can, interestingly, if you think about this in the historical context, we can trace this back to the very first family, can't we? For the very first family experienced the very first murder. Right? Adam and Eve's boys. Cain and Abel. Sin crept in and caused there to be enmity between them, and Cain killed his brother Abel. Very first family. Very first murder. So I know you think your family has problems, right? Could be worse. Just a few chapters later, prior to the flood, we read in Genesis 6, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Genesis 6. There's a lot of Bible left to be written. This is early, early, early on in the process, and yet sin, because of its nature, because of Satan's attack of conflict, of bringing enmity, which is every bit as real today as it was back in Genesis, isn't it? That's why I love the Bible. The Bible helps us explain our reality. It's like, why? Why is there violence? Why do kids get shot in schools? Why is there constantly fighting? and and all? This is why. Listen to James 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you, Our sin? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is the nature of the sinful heart. And so Satan is all about stirring up conflict and erecting walls, walls of division and separation. Conflict is his scheme, enmity is his method. He is most effective when he can get us, listen carefully, he is most effective when he can get us to demonize people and treat them as the enemy. But we know better, right? We know better. Why? We just read it this morning, verse 12, Ephesians 6. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. People are instruments at times of Satan's deception and of his lies and of his conflict. They are tools of Satan. They are the heads of the dandelions. But where is the root? It is Satan himself. So don't lose sight of the fact that people, even though they're right in front of us and they sure look like the enemy, they're not the enemy. They're not the cause. They're not the root. Satan is. He is the one who stirs the pot, bringing division and hostility. His scheme is conflict. Enmity with God and enmity with people. The good news, as we have had good news every week as we've encountered one of Satan's schemes, whether that's lies or accusation or in this case conflict, is that God has not left us defenseless against Satan's scheme. He has in fact provided for us the perfect defense against enmity. And we read about it in verse 15, where again it says, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. As shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now, there are two concepts in this one verse that we have to unpack that tell us what these shoes are like. We need to unpack them. The first is that they are described as the gospel of peace, the gospel of peace. Now, what exactly is that? What's it talking about, and how does it relate to shoes, and how does it relate to being able to defend ourselves? Well, remember, what is Satan's scheme here? It's conflict, enmity with God, enmity with people, and so what we need to counteract conflict is peace. It's peace, we need peace with God and we need peace with people. And here's where the gospel comes into play. And here's where the gospel is probably bigger than we realize. Bigger than we give it credit for. First of all, the gospel brings peace with God. As it says in Colossians 1.15, "...for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God is pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things..." whether on earth or in heaven, doing what? Making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus makes peace with God possible. He is the only means by which we may experience peace with God. And so here are the key elements to this gospel of peace, and they're very exciting. First of all, as we've already explored, man was at war with God. Man was at war with God, which potentially is the worst news ever as we read in revelation 19 you don't want to be on the wrong side of history you don't want to be god's enemy at the end of the day we see how the story ends but it is that worst of all news which makes the gospel of peace the best news ever for you see in number two the death of jesus on the cross brought peace Man was at war with God. The death of Jesus on the cross brought peace. It's that great exchange that we talked about last week in 2 Corinthians 5.21. This diagram, which I think is just so simple but so profound. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus to be sin for us. All of our sin was placed on Him. Why? That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. This great exchange, the best deal ever. We give Jesus our sin. He gives us his righteousness, and now we are covered by his righteousness. When God sees us and Satan accuses us, God doesn't see us as the wretched sinners that we have been. He now sees us as the righteousness of Christ, which results in our justification, our right relationship with God, and we are ultimately at peace with him which then has profound implications for spiritual warfare. For number three in the gospel of peace is this. We are now on God's side, and he is fighting for us. We are now on God's side, and he is fighting for us. As the scripture says, if God is for us, who can be against us? You can bring all the demons you want. You can bring Satan himself. It doesn't matter because we've got an omnipotent God who is fighting for us. God wins, and therefore, so do we. Which leads to number four. This is indeed good news, is it not? This is indeed good news. John MacArthur explains the gospel of peace this way. He says... In this passage, the gospel of peace refers to the good news that believers are at peace with God. The gospel of peace is the marvelous truth that in Christ we are now at peace with God and are one with him. Therefore, when our feet are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, we stand in the confidence of God's love for us, his union with us, and his commitment to fight for us. "'The believer who stands in the Lord's power "'need not fear any enemy, even Satan himself. "'When he comes to attack us, "'our feet are rooted firmly "'on the solid ground of the gospel of peace "'through which God changed from our enemy "'to our defender. "'We who were once his enemies are now his children, "'and our Heavenly Father offers us his full resources "'to be strong in the Lord "'and in the strength of his might.'" And all of God's people said, amen to that. And because of this peace, guess what, church? We can lay our heads on our pillows at night and sleep in heavenly peace, knowing that we have peace with God. Can you put a price on that? Nothing better. So that is the significance of the gospel of peace. The next concept that we need to unpack in verse 15 here is this word readiness. Readiness. It begs the question, well, ready for what? For what exactly are we to be ready? Well, ready for two things. One is defensive and the other is offensive. Church, I think sometimes we fall into this trap of simply being defensive when God has called us, yes, to be defensive when we're attacked, but to go on the offensive as well. First of all, the shoes of the gospel of peace give us readiness to stand. Readiness to stand. To stand against what? What? to stand against the attacks of the devil. Remember, that is the primary theme here in Ephesians 6, isn't it? We see that word used over and over. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then in verse 14, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Well, in order to stand, you got to have firm footing. Am I right? You gotta have firm footing. If you got slippery soles or you got no soles or you're like Washington's army on their way to Valley Forge, you're not gonna stand so well. And so, what God has provided for us that we might stand and withstand against Satan's attacks are shoes. These shoes of the gospel of peace, giving us the readiness to stand when he attacks. Now, for the Roman soldier in the first century, these shoes had two primary characteristics. Number one, they had fixed soles. They had thick soles. Now, that was important because um, an important tactic of the enemy at that time, and even not that long ago, is that the enemy would put sharp sticks in the ground and hide them, maybe with leaves or loose ground. Sharp sticks, a very sharp point, burying them so that they could not be easily seen. And what would happen then when an army comes marching, if their feet are not protected properly, they would step on these sharp sticks and incur great injury to their feet and an army that cannot march, an army that cannot stand is what kind of army? It's a defeated army. It's a defeated army. So one of the characteristics that the Roman soldiers in the first century had were shoes with thick soles to protect their feet against just such a catastrophe. Number two, in the first century, the Roman soldier, his shoes had long cleats had long cleats. Uh, The Jewish historian Josephus, he described these shoes as thickly studded with sharp nails. Thickly studded with sharp nails so as to ensure a good grip. Now, our modern-day equivalent would be this. Right? Yeah. A a first-century Roman soldier, you know what he would have done to have a pair of those? He would have been all over that. Um... And so the right shoes give a football player, give a Roman soldier the solid footing needed to be victorious, to engage in that hand-to-hand type of combat that we talked about in week number one. And so it is for the Christian. The shoes of the gospel of peace give us the ability to defend ourselves against Satan's scheme of conflict. You see, by them, by the gospel of peace, we can have peace with God, and we can have peace with others. So the shoes give us readiness. They give us readiness to stand against Satan's schemes, and in this particular case, the scheme of conflict, bringing peace with God and peace with others. But they also give us readiness to march. Readiness to march. And this is the offensive element of the shoes. For you see, shoes are not intended for us to stay in one place, are they? The point of shoes on our feet is that we might get moving. Historians note that the military successes of both Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar were due in large measure to the fact that their armies had such great footwear. And thus they were able to take long marches and to do it with great speed over rough terrain. The army was able to march, to move, to maneuver. That's the kind of army that wins. The one that goes on the offensive. And so it is in spiritual warfare. Yes, our shoes of the gospel of peace enable us to stand defensively against the attacks of the devil, but they also enable us to march offensively. Specifically, when we think about the content of these shoes being the gospel of peace, they enable us to spread that message as we march. Um, Isaiah 52, verse 7, a familiar verse, says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news who publishes peace that sounds familiar doesn't it who brings good news of happiness who publishes salvation who says to Zion your god reigns now this verse is so awesome it's then quoted in Romans 10:14 where it says how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed and how are they to believe in him in whom they have never heard and how are they to hear without someone preaching and how are they to preach unless they are sent As it is written in Isaiah 52, 7, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Church, can I ask you a question this morning? A personal question. How beautiful are your feet? Our feet are not typically the most beautiful parts of us, are they? Especially as we get older. We accumulate some uh, life experience on our feet, may we say blisters and calluses and bunions. In my case, I have hairy toes, okay? And it's not particularly attractive. Um, However, from God's perspective, our feet are potentially one of the most beautiful parts of our bodies. Why? They are most beautiful when they are on the move with the readiness of the gospel of peace. This is the kind of readiness that Paul was writing about when he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2. He said, preach the word, be ready, Preach the word, be ready. The readiness given by the gospel of peace in season and out of season. Similarly, Peter said, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared, being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. I love how that old chorus, you know, take my life and let it be you think of the verse that I'm thinking of right now? Take my feet and let them be swift and beautiful for thee. Well, what makes beautiful feet according to the word of God? It is when we take the gospel of peace. We start marching and we start sharing. And so the shoes of the gospel of peace provide readiness to stand defensively, but also to march offensively. So let's talk about that on a practical level, our implementation I believe that our implementation can be summed up by Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 9, where Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We are to follow with our shoes with the gospel of peace. We are to follow in the footsteps of the Prince of Peace and make peace wherever we go. You see, just as the devil's enmity attacks us on two axes, right? Remember the vertical, God, and the horizontal, people, creating conflict on both of those, so our peacemaking is to impact these same two axes, peace with God, peace with others. The gospel is both and. First of all, we are to be peacemakers on the vertical axis, proclaiming the gospel of peace wherever we go. Proclaiming the gospel of peace wherever we go. Get those shoes moving, right? And it doesn't have to be to the other side of the world, it might be to the other side of the street, it might be to the other side of the office. Wherever God has planted you, you have a mission field, and He has given you the shoes of the gospel of peace to march across that hallway, to march across that street, and to be salt, and to be light, and not in a way that's obnoxious, but in a way that gives others hope, in a way that causes them to say, what is the reason for the hope that is within you and God creates this wonderful divine appointment, these wonderful opportunities for you to say, huh? Funny you should ask. Let me share with you. Check out 2 Corinthians 5.18. It says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation is all about peace, right? Peace vertically, peace horizontally. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, I love this concept, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, Be reconciled to God. God's strategy for making peace in the world, you know what it is? It's you. It's you living out and proclaiming His gospel. That is the hope of the world. That is how we defeat Satan's attack of conflict, of raising up enmity between God and between people. It is the shoes of the gospel of peace, which are both defensive and offensive. We are ambassadors for Christ, it says. An ambassador is an accredited diplomat. Did you know you are an accredited diplomat? Sent by a country as its official representative to a foreign country. You are far more important than you know. In God's kingdom, You are an accredited diplomat sent by Almighty God as his official representative in this foreign land, this foreign country, this foreign world in which we live. That's a really big deal. We are meant to use our shoes of the gospel of peace to proclaim peace with God to all who would hear. And in so doing, we defeat Satan in his efforts to foster enmity with God and with people. So in that sense, number one, we are to be peacemakers on the vertical axis, proclaiming the gospel of peace wherever we go. Next, number two, we are also to be peacemakers on the horizontal axis, living the gospel of peace wherever we go. Living the gospel of peace wherever we go. Romans 12:18 says it this way, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. For here's the deal. As I mentioned earlier, the gospel of peace is not only about peace with God, it is about the implication that we also are to live at peace with one another. That's what the church largely is about. We take a bunch of people, sinful, would be naturally button heads against each other and at war with each other. We become a family, a peaceful family. And that's why it's so egregious when churches live and accept conflict within the ranks. That's why it's so egregious. Is it is an affront. It is a distortion of the gospel, which not only brings peace with God, but peace with one another. Now, examples of the power of the gospel to bring peace with one another. In the Old Testament, we've got that story of Jacob and Esau, don't we? Jacob had deceived his brother, stole his birthright, stole his blessing. Esau literally was making plans to kill his brother before Jacob escaped. But then years later, somewhere in between, something happened to Esau. I believe it was the gospel of peace. I believe God changed Esau's heart. Esau released bitterness and he forgave. And he was released from spiritual bondage because of that. And all of a sudden, these two brothers were reconciled. There was peace on the, ver- on the horizontal axis. In the New Testament, we have the story of the division that existed between Jews and Gentiles. Two people who absolutely hated each other and were divided by hostility. It's like there was a wall between them. Jews looked down on Gentiles as dirty sinners. And Gentiles despised Jews because of their arrogant self-righteousness. If you ever had two people groups who were least likely to get along and to be united it was these two groups but then came jesus and the gospel of peace as it says in ephesians 2 verse 14 jesus himself is our peace who has made both jew and gentile one he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I love that phrase, killing the hostility. That's what Jesus has called us to do as peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called sons of God, those who put on the shoes of the gospel of peace and follow in the footsteps of the Prince of Peace. We are called to be those who kill the hostility. Where there are fires of enmity burning and they are burning all around us, we are to bring buckets of water that put them out. We are not to fan the flames. Now, I do go back to the previous verse that talked about the fact, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There will be situations where the other party simply has no interest in living peaceably. You do all that you can, nor does this mean that we compromise truth. Because what what was the very first part of weaponry that we put on, of armor, it was the belt of truth. That's first. But here we are reminded we are to put on the shoes of the gospel of peace and live peaceably. And so, We are to be peacemakers on the vertical axis, proclaiming the gospel of peace wherever we go, the horizontal axis, living the gospel of peace wherever we go. As we close today, would you please stand with me? I'd like us to pray in unison that prayer that we did several weeks ago, just as kind of the exclamation mark on this day, on this sermon. is a prayer where we're asking God to help us in the context of spiritual warfare. And so would you join me in praying this in unison aloud? Strengthen my faith, Lord. Forgive my sins so that I may be clean in your righteousness. Make me brave so I can stand and fight the spiritual battles in my life and in our world. Give me your wisdom and discernment so I won't be caught off guard. Together, Lord, we'll win because in truth, you already have. While evil still roams, the power of your name and your blood rises up to defeat and bring us victory against every evil planned against us. While malicious actions may disturb us, we use the armor of God you have given us to stand firm. You will bring justice in due time for all the harm and needless violence aimed at your children. Until then, we remain in your presence, aligned with your purposes, and we look to you as our supreme commander and protector. Help us to avoid temptation and deliver us from evil, Lord. You are the mighty one, the one who will ultimately bring all evil to light. With you, Jesus, we are safe. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that we have everything we need this morning to stand firm. And God, help us go beyond that defensive posture to being offensive, recognizing there is a world out there that is dying without the gospel of peace, a world that is in conflict with you. They are your enemies. God, may we bring to them that saving message. And we ask that you would grant us favor with our neighbors, with our coworkers, with those around us. Grant us favor and divine appointments to be able to share that message of the gospel with them. And may we see a bright and large harvest of lost souls coming to know you. Fill this baptismal with waters and with people eager to be baptized on a weekly basis, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.